Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. She's Stephanie McNeil, and you are watching AM to DM. Stephanie, we are back together co-hosting the show. And we're always on beat. Whenever you start dancing, <laughs> I always start dancing with you, and we and always get it together. You know, I think that's one of the highlights of us hosting the show. Yeah, and the guys are back on the road for their Making in the Most of road trip. They are headed to Ohio today, and uh, later in the show, we're going to get to see what they were up to in Austin. Yeah, very exciting. I would love to go on a work-sponsored vacation. Um, BuzzFeed, I don't know, but <laughs> apparently this is a thing. This is a thing that people do apparently, and they're having a great time. So we're here with you, and we're excited to bring you the news this morning. You ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, while lawmakers were having a very tense day yesterday after they received the FBI report on Kavanaugh, Senator Patrick Leahy, a Democrat from Vermont, tweeted a selfie. <laughs> and no one knows why. Okay, Alex and I, I just tweeted, tried to do our best. Senator Leahy, one of the girls on my team, Julia Reinstein, did the Senator Leahy challenge, and we tried to all do a selfie in that vein. I went for the smile. You went for the more. Yeah, um, he's giving like a blue steel kind of look. But what I want to know is, what does he know that we don't know about what's happening on Capitol Hill this week uh, to give such a selfie of um, I think we know exactly what he knows. The lighting's good. The lighting is very the good. The lighting's very good. Sure found his angle. Well, the internet some, had some theories about the selfie. Meg Kinnard tweeted, hey, when you're in your feels, you've just got to let the world know. And Shoshana Weissman tweeted, when you take 40 selfies and finally get the right angle. And finally, Senator Leahy retweeted himself, yep, that's me. Sure was, that's him. I tweeted this, no one retweeted or liked it, <laughs> but I thought it was funny. That made me think of the Amanda show. That's me. <laughs> you are really taking it back for You a know moment, what? My so. brain just thinks of weird things. Okay, well, Twitter, we want to hear from you. What's the most random reason you've ever posted a selfie? Tweet us at AMTDM. I am very excited to see all of these responses. I think they're going to be good. What's the most random reason you've posted a selfie? I don't really post selfies. Do you post selfies? I, I do post selfies. You're a selfie um, on days when I'm like happy with my makeup situation and also the clothing that I'm wearing. I have posted like an accidental selfie on Instagram stories where I've just, you know, accidentally taken a photo of myself and then it goes up and then I'm like, that was not a very flattering angle. So <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm gonna have to keep a better eye on your Instagram stories just to see like, oh, Alex is just doing her makeup on the train and here's a selfie. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> well, listen, Leahy and the rest of the Senate have quite a weekend ahead with the Kavanaugh confirmation vote expected within the next few days. So let's go live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Good morning, Tarini. Good morning, guys. Okay, Tarini, before we start, we have a very serious question. What do you think of Leahy's selfie game? You know, maybe he just got portrait mode, I don't know, on his iPhone, but I can't do that expression, so I mean, more power to him. I think that is uh, such a good point. Portrait mode is a gift to us all. <laughs> but on a more serious note, what's the timing for the votes happening today and tomorrow? Right, so we're expecting a big vote. Uh, this is sort of the procedural vote to move forward with the confirmation process this morning. It's supposed to be around 10.30, and then we could see a final confirmation vote as early as tomorrow. So what impacts the timing of the vote? 
There are a lot of things that could happen, as we've already seen in this crazy news cycle in the last two weeks. Anything is possible. Stuff keeps coming up. Uh, but more importantly, uh, we still don't know exactly how these undecided Republican senators and also um, one Democratic senator, how they're going to vote. So, you know, if they don't have the votes to, uh, to confirm Brett Kavanaugh, they might have to delay the process once again. But, you know, at this point, um, the, the cloture vote, uh, the procedural vote that we'll see this morning will be telling whether that's needed. So, Trini, you said we don't know uh, what's going to happen with these undecided senators. Um, can you shed some light on what the process would be like? Uh, would we find out in the news first, perhaps, uh, which way they're going to vote? And then from there, it would be delayed? So I think it's going to be a mix of things. We're seeing um, already this morning uh, Senator Susan Collins, who is one of those um, undecided swing senators. Uh, she has said that she's going to announce how she's going to vote at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Um, you know, other senators might choose to go that same route. We saw uh, Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp announce yesterday. So, you know, whether it's an announcement or sort of one of those just on the floor, yes or no kind of situations that's more of a surprise, um, we'll have to see. But usually, you know, when if someone is still undecided and has not voted on the Senate floor, senators will try to sort of talk to them. You'll see some huddles, kind of like how we saw in the, the health care uh, vote uh, several months ago. So wait, wait, wait. You said uh, she's going to decide at 3 o'clock, but this cloture vote is happening in the next 25 minutes or so. So people can, that's her, that's how she's going to vote on the, the confirmation process. The cloture vote is essentially a vote to end the debate and move forward with uh, the confirmation process. So I was watching CNN, our fave, yesterday, and they were making a huge deal about the fact that Heitkamp said she was going to vote no. That was a little confusing to me because before all of this started, everyone was saying, oh, all Democrats are going to vote no. And she was kind of, I guess I was kind of like, well, duh. Are there other senators that we are maybe going to expect to flip or that we should be keeping our eye on? And how significant was it really that she decided to vote no? Right. So there are these red state Democrats who are up in very difficult reelection races. And so I think that's why some people had, uh, like you said, even though a lot of Democrats were expected to vote no, there are these certain Democrats that could possibly join Republicans and vote yes. Heidi Heitkamp was one of them, Joe Donnelly, Joe Manchin. Um, Heitkamp, of course, as you said, came out yesterday and said she wasn't going to be uh, voting for Brett Kavanaugh because she said she couldn't look at herself in the morning, you know, having gone through the life experiences that she she has um, and, and vote yes on, on Kavanaugh. And I think that decision might actually have some impact on especially the, the women senators, uh, Lisa Murkowski and, and Susan Collins, um, just because Heidi Heitkamp made it so personal. She was very emotional in talking about this. And we know a lot of these, um, there aren't a lot of uh, women senators. And they, the, the ones who are there are very close to each other. They do have these dinners. So you could see maybe you know they talked, maybe that had some impact. Uh, but we could also see someone like Joe Manchin join uh, Republicans and vote yes. So that's the the, the, the one Democrat um, who could still vote yes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you for explaining that to me. So obviously there's other factors as, at play here as well. Some of them a little random. Here's a tweet from NBC Montana's Maritza Georgiou. Senator Steve Daines has a scheduling conflict this weekend. He says he'll be walking his daughter down the aisle at her Montana wedding, regardless of the Kavanaugh vote that could take place this weekend. 
Well, here's a follow-up from Dane's spokesperson. He'll be walking his daughter down the aisle in Montana on Saturday. That hasn't changed, and if his vote is needed, he will make arrangements to make it back in time to vote. Tarini, could this really delay the vote? Yeah, I mean, the, the wedding seems like a pretty huge uh, conflict here, depending on how what the numbers are looking like. So if, you know, if it's a really close vote and they need him to be in, in Washington, he's going to have to fly back and they'll hold the vote open. So they could start the process tomorrow for the final vote. If they don't have the votes, then they could keep the vote open for several hours waiting for him to fly in and, and vote uh, for Brett Kavanaugh because he is, he is a, he's definitely a yes vote. So they are counting on him and might need him to step away from the wedding and, and fly back. Be like, Dad, I've been planning this dang wedding for a year and you're gonna head out. I mean, I guess she should feel grateful. I would not be happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I feel like she should feel grateful. I guess her dad's making the trip out there in this pivotal moment in American history, but it's a little awkward, I think. It's just awkward all around. Yeah. Okay, so we have one more little wrinkle in all of this. Brett Kavanaugh himself. Here's a tweet from CNN's Caitlin Collins. As key senators weigh their votes, Brett Kavanaugh publishes an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, apologizing for his demeanor last week, and she quotes him, I was very emotional last Thursday, more so than I have ever been. I might have been too emotional at times. Okay, Trini, obviously this is very unusual for someone being considered for the Supreme Court to write an op-ed in their defense. Who do you think that Brett was writing this for? So it seems like he was writing for the audience of those four or five senators that are still undecided. Uh, you know, this question that's come up from uh, people who are pushing for a vote against Kavanaugh is not just about the, the sexual assault allegations against him or misconduct or, you know, the drinking stuff. The, one, of the st one of the things that's come up is his temperament throughout the hearing. And, um, you know, is, can he still be impartial? Will he be emotional um, when he's deciding cases on the bench? So that's been a big question. And I think this was his uh, way of sort of addressing those concerns that some of some senators might still have and also some Republicans more broadly um, who, who potentially have those concerns after watching that hearing. Oh, well, I know I'm going to be uh, glued to Twitter through the course of the weekend as all of this voting happens. But moving along, here's a tweet from you, Tarini. Republicans need to close the enthusiasm gap in the final weeks before the election. Don Burley are there to help. My dispatch from Conroe, Texas on Don Jr. and Kim Guilfoyle trying to fire up the base and raise hundreds of thousands for candidates. Trini, why are Don Jr. and Guilfoyle, aka Don Burley, making the rounds now? Right, so Don Burley, as they're known by their fans on, on social media, are traveling all over the country. They're trying to fire up the base. The problem that Republicans are facing ahead of the midterms is this enthusiasm gap between the Democratic base and the Republican base. Um, and so they, they feel like they can step in here and really help out, um, draw big crowds, get people excited to go vote, um, and then also raise a lot of money for these um, for these Republican candidates. They Trump Jr. has a lot of you know, connections. He's good with sort of the CEO business crowd, but then he's also good with, you know, talking to Montana uh, Republicans, Texas Republicans. You know, he thinks he's uh, this hunter, fisher. Uh, he can talk to them about those types of outdoorsy things and, and um, sort of relate to them better than other potential Republican surrogates who go out on the campaign trail might. So you said that they think they can be a big help. Do other people think they're going to be a big help, like, say, the GOP at large, the Trump administration, or are they just kind of striking out on their own and doing their own thing and everyone's like, 
<laughs> so they do seem to be in demand. The, the campaigns are the ones requesting them to show up to these things. Uh, and from what I heard, they're very much in demand. Obviously, the president and the vice president continue to be the most wanted um, of these Republican surrogates on the, on the campaign trail. But Don Jr. and his girlfriend, Kim Guilfoyle, seem to be right up there after them in terms of demand. That makes really. sense. I mean, Kim <laughs> Guilfoyle was on Fox News for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, she's a celebrity to a lot of people. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that, I, you know, Don Burley is the couple name that I never needed, but seems very <laughs> appropriate in 2018. <laughs> Trina, can you talk a little bit more about the uh, exact strategy with this pair? Right. So we've seen uh, President Trump kind of muddy the message when he goes out on the campaign trail, when he's trying to get the vote out. He'll tell people, you know, go out and vote. We don't want Democrats taking over Congress. But then he'll also say, oh, but the media is overhyping the blue wave. The, the polls are always wrong. They were wrong in 2016. So it's sending this sort of confusing message out to Republican voters. Um, and Trump Jr. and Kim Guilfoyle are doing the exact opposite. They are making it very clear, you know, we Republicans might be fat and happy as they said, because they're getting everything they want, but it could all go away. So they're sort of saying, go out there because these polls are real. And if they're not real, let's run up the score, go out there anyway. So that's kind of their, their strategy here, which is a little different from what, what uh, the president is doing. Very interesting. Fat and happy Republicans. <laughs> well, Tarini, thank you so That's much. That's image. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> All right, well, later on in the show, Tiffany Thiessen is here. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Stay tuned. I love pushing the Fire Tweets button. <laughs> All right, so I got majorly called out by some of our producers on Slack, which is the messaging app we use here at the show. I do post selfies for the show only. only it makes me very show. uncomfortable because I'm not a selfie person, but you know, I have to embrace the selfie life. I'm going to be on Twitter TV. It's, it's kind of my duty. Stephanie, I think that you should just own your selfie. Enjoy your selfie. Don't be ashamed of the selfie. This is a great one. I mean, I feel like I can't even look at it because I look so awkward, but... I think you look fantastic, and you're giving a really serious, I am ready for business, I am ready to host the show kind of look. Well, that was my best Alex Berg face. Oh, thank you. I was wearing your thank jacket. You. That was the whole point. I'm just trying to live up to you. That's my, that's my whole goal Stephanie. in life. All right, you ready to hit this button? Yeah, let's do it. Chai tweeted, paid my rent, so don't ask me to go out because I'm in the crib getting my money's worth. Yes. I never want to leave my house because I pay too much money to be there, so I need to just be there. It's true. It's like, I'm going to be sitting on my couch looking at these walls that I have paid far too much money to exist within. Yeah. That's exactly. just what it is. Exactly. There that's you just go. what it is. That's what you're doing. All right. Ready for this next one? Zywe hit uh, says, where do beautiful, smart, funny people go to find dates? Asking for a friend that just so happens to be myself. I don't know. Where do they go? I don't know. I love a good asking for a friend kind of dating advice question, especially one of this nature, which is just like, help me find the good, wonderful people. I feel like people should tweet at this person, and if you're nice and funny, you should go on a date with them. That's my matchmaking <laughs> of the day. <laughs> okay, this person's name is Grave Slash Shade. <laughs> 
I love that. These, these names sometimes are <laughs> so good for Halloween. Yeah. Okay. Some of you youths are going to be real disappointed when you discover that turning 30 just means you still have all the same weird interests, but can't turn your head all the way to the left anymore. This one makes me feel so affirmed because as a 31-year-old, it's so real. Number one, I totally still have weird interests. I play roller derby, I like roller skating, and I'm, a, I'm an adult, and I also can't turn my head fully all the way. But those two things might be connected. I wouldn't know, I'm only 29. <sighs> Rude. Uh, all right, next one. Viking. Why don't they just make a whole coffee table out of whatever coasters are made of? <laughs> I feel like that's not, I feel like, okay. That would solve so many of my no, problems. No, no, whatever, what's the name, Viking? Coasters get messed up. If you have coasters for a long time, they have a little circle on them. That's why you have the coaster. So if you had a whole table full of coasters, you just have marks on all of the coasters. But, you know, the point is that this would take away all of your problems in terms of getting your table marked up with coffee or whatever. I don't know. But then you, you would just have an ugly table. Stuff. I rest my case. The button wasn't ready for me. <laughs> French people be like, Bonjour, fellas. Today we're chasing this baguette. It's so good. But yeah, I don't know. So I'm really good. sorry, France. That was a really bad French accent. I've actually never been to France. I, I apologize. I love the, the spirit. The whole, whole entire enthusiasm really behind bad. it. Okay. Get horse. Here are three things I've never done. Left a rental property without thoroughly deep cleaning it moved out without a landlord trying to charge me for at least some cleaning, moved in anywhere, totally clean, amen. It's so hard, you know, you do all the cleaning before you leave, then you move into a new place and it's dirty. And then you get charged. I, I have had to clean every single apartment I think I ever have moved into up to my standards and it's really, really annoying. I don't mind cleaning my own stuff, but when it's in some like random strangers. I also hate visiting apartments like when you're looking at them and then they're disgusting. A, lo a lot to unpack here, a lot to unpack. Let's get to this tweet of the day. We have so much to talk about, okay. <laughs> tweet of the day is from Mary Houlihan. Thrilled to announce the last time I checked my bank account was only a dream and I have not, in fact, been direct deposited $5,400 for that thing I forgot about. No, it's like you wake up in the morning and you're like, my $5,400. Oh, that was not real at all. All. Sometimes I fantasize about like Bank of America accidentally putting some money into my checking account and just like spending it or whatever. See, you fantasize about that as a person who lives in a place between anxiety and paranoia. I would be like, oh, they accidentally gave me money in my banking account. If I spend it, am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to have to pay them back? What will happen? I don't know. All I'm right. Spend it. Well, on Stay that note, <laughs> up next, we're talking about where the Me Too movement is. And uh, we'll be talking to Zainab Salbi, who is an incredibly amazing activist and writer. Yeah, that'll be exciting. Woman of many talents. One year ago, the New York Times published a bombshell report on Harvey Weinstein's pattern of sexual assault and harassment. The Me Too movement was born. Today, BuzzFeed News is launching a series called What Now?, which will explore all of the ways our society has and has not changed in the years since. One of the first articles in the series, published this morning, is by BuzzFeed News reporter Ariane Lang, who wrote, their husbands threatened to kill them, but these women still had to pay spousal support. Ariane joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Ariane, this headline is just staggering. What happened to the women you spoke to? Um, so all of them uh, divorced their husbands after 
they reported them to the police for pretty shocking um, domestic violence incidents. Um, Crystal Harris in California reported a sexual assault. Barbara Bentley reported an attempted murder. Their husbands were convicted. And they thought they had done all the right things in the criminal proceedings. But in family court, they still ended up having to pay their husband's uh, spousal support because they had made this financial commitment to them that uh, superseded anything their husbands may have done to them, even a criminal conviction. Your report I read this morning, it's so incredibly maddening and shocking that women would have to pay spouseless support. I think one of the women you cited was $1,000 a month to someone who abused them either sexually or physically. Um, but what maybe was even a little more surprising, if that's possible, is some of the things that the judges in the cases said to these women as evidence or justification for having to pay the money. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, so Crystal Harris's judge in particular said some uh, pretty surprising things back in uh, 2010 and 2011 when her attorney said to him that, you know, it was in, within his discretion to um, order no spousal support, even though she was the breadwinning spouse. Uh, he replied to her attorney, you know, oh, I think, wouldn't that be sexist? Uh, and I guess referring to reverse sexism against men. Uh, and then her attorney, you know, shot back um, that her husband threatened to kill her. Um, but yeah, it sort of, it turns out that in uh, almost every state, it's sort of a the wild west if you take your claims to court and there's not a lot to protect you necessarily. Uh, you're sort of at the whims of the judge that you end up with. Yeah, the big thing that I was thinking about is if these women have any recourse at all, um, you know, if there are any efforts underway, you know, to push back against this kind of practice. Um, and you said it's like the Wild West out there, um, you know, from state to state. Are there any states that uh, ban spousal support like this? So because of Crystal Harris's activism uh, after she was, after her husband was convicted of sexually assaulting her, of forcing oral sex on her, she worked with a uh, Democratic then assembly member to change the law in California to prevent uh, victims of uh, felony sexual assault from paying alimony to their convicted attacker. Um, previously in California, Barbara Bentley in the 1990s had gotten a similar law passed to protect victims of attempted murder. Uh, because she had to pay her husband alimony until he died in 1996. So he attacked her in 1991 and was convicted. And uh, she got that law changed back in the 1990s. And um, New Jersey is trying to change the law to protect victims of domestic violence, but that bill has been stalled for years. So when I read this story, it was incredibly maddening you, Alex, said it was maddening, but not surprising, unfortunately. And I think a lot of women are gonna read this story today and think to themselves, this is so horrible, this makes me so upset, and want to do something. 
Is there anything that our viewers and readers can do to try and support legislation or try to support these women in not having to pay spousal support to their abusers? Um, definitely. Well, I don't, I think there's uh, not much you can do for Paul English and Virginia who's already paying spousal support and um, Crystal Harris and Barbara Bentley, their cases are over, but uh, for women moving forward, you know, you can call your local representative and say, this is an issue. You should do something about this. Definitely. Yeah, I think when we read these things, especially, you know, we're obviously talking about the Me Too movement today, and it can just seem like a lot of bad news after the other, but I think it's important to remind everyone that we can take a stand and we can speak out. So if the story has moved you, I definitely would encourage everyone to do that. Thank you so much, Ariane, for sharing your story. BuzzFeed News tweeted this this morning, the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to Congolese gynecologist Denise Mukwege and Yadzi human rights activist Nadia Murad. They were awarded for their efforts to end the use of sexual violence in war and armed conflict. To which Zainab Salbi tweeted, congratulations to my friends for the Nobel Peace Prize awarded. Well deserved for their courage, resilience, and speaking truth to power. May they be safe and sound as they continue their courageous work. Zainab Salbi joins us now. She's the host of the PBS series, Me Too, Now What? And the author of Freedom is an Inside Job. Welcome. Thank you. So excited to have you on this morning, just because all of this is coming against a backdrop of the Kavanaugh vote and the anniversary of Me Too. What does it mean to recognize uh, the work of these two at this moment? Very important statement by the Nobel Peace Prize. I feel it's t saying, while in a time where women's voices are being dismissed, not believed, all of that, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate uh, committee saying, we believe women, this is important, their voice is important, what's happening to them is very, very important. You know, it's not only, I mean, I'm so happy I got the privilege to know both of them and call them friends, actually. I was one of the first person to interview Nadia months, literally, uh, after her uh, managing to escape from ISIS. It was in June 2015. She was still afraid at that time. She was still living in a trailer in a refugee camp and still covered. And I looked at her and I said, Nadia, are you sure you want to speak up? It was in front of the camera. And she said, my consciousness does not allow me to be silent. I must speak up. And she was telling me that while she was captured by her captor, who was gangrene raping her, summoning her, gifting her to friends, forcing her to have oral sex, all of these things, she told him one day during her captor, she said, one day I will manage to escape and I shall name you by your name and I will speak up about what happened to you. And that was only three years ago. I mean, this is amazing, important that she, look at her. She's now, at the, you know, receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, at Nobel Laureate, and the whole world now has heard her. So it's a big message if, beyond Nadia, beyond all the Congolese women who have spoken and worked with Dr. Mikwege, beyond Dr. Forbia, it's a big message to all of us. It may be hard to speak up at the beginning. It may be... You may have to go through an ordeal, losses of loved ones, the divorce, all of these things, but it is worth it. And we must, must continue to speak up. I feel like that's definitely a message that we all that's would so love incredible. to hear now. Yeah. You know, obviously it can be a little discouraging in this moment, but it is so important to speak up and it will be worth it in the end. So you host a show called Me Too, Now What? And we're now exactly a year since the Me Too movement started. What do you think is next? Well, you know, 
I think next is that we move the discussion from only certain men's behavior, the men, the men who have been called, to actually really assessing where have we been part of creating a culture that allowed for the hyper-sexualization of women and objectification of women. You know, we need to really look. And so in the show, for example, I talked to gamers, game des- you know, designers who are saying women in the gaming industry and the gaming world are portrayed in a very particular way that is really impacting the psyche of boys who are playing it. I talked to musicians who are talking about how images of women in, in the music industry is very, very particularly objectified. It goes on and on and on. So we now, for, for the next, is we need to move from the A, not move, continue to name the men and continue to name and to speak up. And also speak up not about individuals, but about industries and look at the money. Where is it being invested in? Are women who are who have been victims or spoke up, are they supported a lot of the times that I speak actually to women who have been victimized and named their, their harassers at the Me Too movement have like switched from being a well-known, respected professional in this to only being identified as victims. And there is no financial support for them, no institutional reforms for in the industries that they work in. So right now, for us to have now what, we really need to push structural adjust- adjustments in here. All the institutions, companies, we really need to be demanding about our equality and fairness and our treatment and 50% representation in all decision-making. So it it needs to move from individual to a cultural and a societal level. Yeah, I think right now, you know, we're all thinking about what this seismic shift looks like and, and what's going to happen next. And especially in the in the wake of the past week, when I know it's been so difficult for survivors in terms of internalizing all of the Kavanaugh news. Um, in your book, Freedom is an Inside Job, you write about finding internal peace. Um, how are you weighing that just in the wake of everything that's happening right now? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, you know, I... 10 years ago, I broke my own silence about my own the issues that I've been through, whether it's rape and arranged marriage and, and knowing a dictator who oppressed my family and myself. And so, and so every time, so, you know, here's a, the part of what I'm saying is every time I'm afraid, my, my, my shame and my secrets are capturing me in my fear. And every time I actually break away from that fear, which is a very, very, very hard process, it entails a lot of tears and courage to speak up actually about what's happened to you, to all women. And I think this, every woman goes through that. It felt great. It's like, oh my God, I am the liberator of my fear. You know, I don't wait for someone to give me permission to speak. I spoke up. And every time I spoke up, you know, like if there was a dark stone in my chest that gave me anxiety, it became crystal that made me feel great. And so I kept on looking like, oh, where am I not speaking my truth? You know, and I looked at my marriage and I looked at my career and my job and all of that. So it became a job. It became a process that every time I live in my truth and I tell my truth about how I'm feeling and this is not right and this is not fitting and my job was suffocating me and this, my marriage was not working. Every time I took this step, it was hard at the beginning and it was fantastic at the end. So the whole point here is that the taste of freedom is so, so delicious. And it is possible for all of us to taste that freedom and, and peace inside us. It's just, we don't wait for anybody to give it to us. We take the courageous journey and the journey is a hard one. It's not only soft and rosy. Sometimes it has ordeal and tribulation and all of these things, but it is worth it. And then what I ultimately learned that if I am really to advocate for values in the world that I want to advocate for, I really need to implement them in my life. And so, for example, I advocated for forgiveness and peace and reconciliation and quoted Nelson Mandela's speeches. 
But then when my boyfriend hurt me and broke my heart because he cheated on me, I couldn't forgive him. And so I was like, well, what's the point of advocating for this big political discussion when I can't forgive this man in front of me for what he did? So I had to actually look at how do I learn forgiveness in my heart? Then how do I give forgiveness even when I'm not asked to be forgiven? And then now when I'm advocating for forgiveness in the world, in the larger world, and actually particularly we need it these days in America, a process that can help us through that. Now I'm not only advocating for values, now I'm living these values and I'm at peace with myself and living my truth every single day. You have such a beautiful way of speaking, and that's such an amazing way to put it. I love your imagery with anxiety and speaking out in courage. Unfortunately, you have to move to someone who does not speak as well as you. Last night, Bette Midler tweeted out a quote that read, Women are the N-words of the world, which she has since deleted. But in response, Rafi tweeted, It sure is taking Bette Midler a long time to type. I shouldn't have said that. You'd think after hitting peak white feminism at breakneck speed, she'd be a little quicker on the keyboard. So this tweet is getting a lot of chatter on Twitter right now, and I think it speaks to a broader issue of the challenges of building a movement that is intersectional to end sexual violence. Have you found that to be a challenge as well? Definitely, of course. I mean, it's not easy. I mean, like, listen, it's, you know, a lot of our assumptions about camaraderies with women, for example, is not is a lot of the what we assumed is there is not necessarily there. So we have to just right now, we just have to stay in integrity. Each individual has to stay in integrity. We are in a very pivotal time and we're saying they should do this and you should do this. And we're pointing the fingers at each other. And I feel right now all what we need to do, each individual, you be that change that you want to see in the world. You want, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, if, you, if, if she's, she, you know, for me, it's like I look at every tweet, every statement, every politician. Are they acting in integrity or not? Right now, people want truth and people want authenticity. And all of these things, all of it is just gibberish, like now distracting from your going to your own truth and authenticity. So I ask every woman and every man to be showing up right now. Show up in the world. Don't wait for someone else to do it for you. You show up in authenticity and truth. And when you don't do that, it's backfiring anyway. So might as well do it. Walk that walk of your own values and your own life. Yeah, and I mean, you know, walk that walk when it definitely comes to this conversation around intersectionality and the MeToo movement. Stephanie, as white women, we got to do better. We got to go get our people. You know, we have to be having hard conversations with each other. 100%. And uh, yeah, and, and Zainab, I just, I so appreciate everything that you had to say and this book. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Isaac and Saeed on their works are on their work-sanctioned vacation right now. I'm so jealous I can't even get the words out. Sounds really great. <laughs> yep. So next you're going to see what they did on their trip to Austin. Stay tuned. We're doing this again. Round two, baby. Get in, loser. We're going tweeting. Ha-ha! It's fine. Let's take a selfie. I'm getting a burger. Let's go. Sir, can I help you? I want to do single. The mm. bag is secure, darling. Are we there yet? Isaac, are we there yet? Saeed, this is not driving this ferocity. AM to ATX, brought to you by Wendy. Texas, baby. We are in the Lone Star State. Don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. We are in Austin. You know, making, making the, the most, most of part two. <laughs> I grew up in the suburbs of North Dallas. Austin, Texas was like my New York City. We gonna run to some X's? 
Maybe. Ooh, Sai, Texas in Texas. We are on Ladybird Lake, the town lake here in the middle of Austin. It looks like a river. Don't be fooled. <laughs> but it's, it's a lake. Austin, as it turns out, has the largest urban colony of bats in the world. How many bats are we talking? It's like 1.5 million bats. So many bats. are actually very beneficial to our society. Some of their enzymes from bat guano is used to fight pollution. I hear them, yeah. Wow. They're flying right there, y'all see them? Yep, oh wow. Yeah, oh yeah, they're cooking. Oh, oh. Holy smokes, wow. I gotta stop saying wow with my mouth open. No, oh, there it is. The one flying near you? No. Pooped on. Poop. Do you see all those bats? What's going on guys? We are here at UT Austin, day two of the road trip. It's game day. Football is big here. But first we want to go to the Gordon White Building. We're about to talk to Dr. Edmund Gordon. He is the founding department chair of the Black Studies program here at UT Austin. And it feels like if we really want to understand why UT Austin and what's going on here is so important and make the most of mm -hmm. it, we gotta talk to these people. We gotta get into the scene. We've got a Black Studies program here that is about scholarship, but it's also about activism and also about about artistry. So we see art as an intellectual and an activist enterprise that needs to be and should be joined with other kinds of scholarly pursuits in a black studies program. But it's not something that we've always been able to take for granted. So how did it get started here at UT? Well, it's years and years of struggle. You said you've been here about 30 I've years, I've been here correct? for a darn long time. I used to think that progress was linear and progressive. And it turns out at any point, you're in as much danger of turning back as you are in being able to move forward. It's about being willing to push the rock up the hill at all times, despite the fact that it's probably never gonna get to the top. One of the things that the Black Tailgate does and the Black Alumni Weekends does is it brings folks together to recognize what it took to be a black student and to celebrate the ways in which people after they leave here have also been able to make a space for blackness in this society. It takes effort, it takes dedication, but it also takes community. We are with senior Ebony Ellinger. Who are all of these people coming together for this tailgating party? We have black students, black alumni, black faculty all coming together just to, you know, show some black culture here on campus. If there was one word to you that sums up tailgating, what is it? Exciting. I want to see the best jumper in there! Woo! Fun. Connection. One word. Can it be like a phrase? Hot. Stunting. Whoa, hang on. <laughs> It's not gonna be one word, I'm not gonna lie to you, but like, hook them forever, okay? What does tailgating mean to you? An absence of insect repellent. <laughs> Making the most of. Making the most of. Making the most of. I love this microphone. So much. When I graduate, I plan to move and work on becoming a showrunner. Shonda, Lena, know her. What's your Twitter handle? Ebony Ellie. Get in her DM. <laughs> you can DM me, Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> <laughs> We are going to Driftwood, Texas. I can't believe there's not a Netflix show called Driftwood, but it's where the Zolik is. It's like the best barbecue. Oh yeah. 
up. What are you planning on doing? Like a baby? Yeah. Like a meat platter? Oh. Okay, okay. Oh my God, it looks so good. Cheers. We're toasting meat now. Oh my God. On the road again, baby. We are on the road again. Um, it looks like it's like the hill country kind of giving way to maybe the beginnings of Swampland. It's time for us. Isaac, how do you make the most of Austin? Making the most of Austin for me is all about meeting the people. They're quick and easy friendship. I think for me, Austin is a great city where it has such a specific identity. I would recommend saying, is this something that can only happen in Austin? And do that. But now, friends, we're going to Houston. H-Town, darling. and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with actor Tiffany Thiessen, star of Alexa and Katie on Netflix. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm really good. Uh, welcome to New York. Thank you. It's basically your second home, right? Kind of like my second home. I okay. lived here for a long time, yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so I, I conceived like a, a daughter here. Yeah, no big deal. Just Private moment. life into the world. <laughs> <laughs> Private moment. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we're going to do too much detail. Yeah, not too much. <laughs> well, yeah. awesome, so you have a lot going on right now. Yum. You play Lori, the mother of a teenage daughter who's struggling and fighting cancer right, on yes. the hit Emmy-nominated Netflix yeah. show, Alexa and Katie. And I'm curious, how is Lori's parenting style similar or different to your own? Because you have two beautiful children. I know, well, um, the only difference really, truly, there's a lot of similarities, but my kids are much younger. Mm -hmm. It was definitely hard to swallow the fact that they wanted me to play a mother of two teenagers. Yeah. And I was like, really? I have young children. <laughs> like, excuse me? I know, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, no, but the, the show's got a lot of heart. You know, mm -hmm. most typical sitcoms, you know, are all about the laugh and the funny, and we have a lot of that. But be, because we have such a serious sort of kind of storyline running through the show um, with my daughter, you know, um, having cancer and kind of dealing with that, um, it, there's a lot of heart to it. And it's it's been a great... A really great, I, I just, I'm very, I, I feel very blessed to be a part of such a great show and, and the cast is amazing, the crew, and, and we were super excited to get nominated for an Emmy. Lost to Big Bird, but yeah. that's okay. Yeah, Big Bird. Yeah, I mean. it's Big Bird. If you're going to lose to anybody, you lose to <laughs> Big Bird, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. An iconic figure. I mean, <laughs> the show deals with such a heavy subject matter, but yeah. still at the base of it, such a traditional sitcom. Yeah, correct. How do you balance having that funny and serious tone yeah. throughout the show? Well, I mean, it's definitely not, you know, it's, it's the writers. I mean, it's the creator and the writers. I think they've done such an amazing job and I think it really showcases too like showing that humor really is quite helpful in, in a lot of a lot of things that can be kind of serious and hard to deal with um, but they also show kind of the parallel part of how you know she's embarking into high school that's such a huge thing for a lot of teenagers it's so much new but then having this whole other side to it where you know she's going through cancer treatment um, and it shows really the, the closeness between the two best friends and really having a best friend and having family, how important that is. Like having that unity, making sure absolutely, for you. yeah, of course, of, of course. Did you have to do any research or talk to any mothers <clears throat> or family members who are dealing with cancer to research this role? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of us can say we're all touched by cancer in some form. Um, but I used to help actually run a cancer camp for kids. Um, I used to volunteer for a great um, camp in Idaho, and um, I did that for quite a few years. And so I had 
probably 60 kids um, that all had different types of cancer. And so I had a, a lot of background in that. Awesome. So what do you want kids and families who are dealing with serious illnesses and, and things like that to take away from the show this season? I think that there's, um, you know, I mean, again, it, it's I, I think we all have been touched by cancer some some way, some shape and form, and truly how um, love can really, you know, and support can really be, make a difference in someone's life. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And I think the great thing about it is you've had such a long trajectory in your career and you played the You're iconic. basically telling me I'm old. You're not you? old. No. You, are, <laughs> you are very experienced and very well good oh, at your craft. You're so sweet. So, you're I mean, so everyone loves what you do. And Thank you played you. Kelly Kapowski on the hit show Saved by the Bell. Yeah. And your on-screen daughter, is there any advice that you gave her being so young in the industry and how to really navigate, you know, the industry? The, the It's hard. She's still so young that I haven't had, like, that big conversation. But she's had moments where um, she's started starting to see how other people react to her mom, okay. like that kind yeah. of thing. So it's in the beginning stages. Um, but she, you know, uh, it's a question I'll, I'll probably have to answer yeah. in a couple years, okay. really. Let yeah, 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 a little bit. I mean, we talk about it. She knows what I do. Um, before, it was always mommy's a cooker, you know, because when my first, when she first got old enough to understand what I was doing, I was doing a cooking show and, you know, doing my book, which took quite a few years. So um, it was more of that. And now that I'm on Alexa and Katie, which she's obsessed with. Oh, really? But she's more obsessed with the girls on the show, not me. Like, I'm nothing. She's like, mom, whatever. But she sees people recognizing me from that show you know that are her age and her mom's it's it's funny I mean she she's sometimes a little shy with it but she kind of just kind of takes it in she's like mommy it's kind of funny how they recognize you from that show now not your cooking show I'm like yeah that's kind of how it happens yeah are you a fan of any of nostalgic tv shows or uh, any current tv shows right now like any teen dramas you know I'm not a big tv watcher but I did when you know I watched a little bit when I was younger um but I just met Dan Rather, and CBS Sunday Morning News was my favorite. Oh my gosh. Literally my favorite news, I, right? I kind of geeked out. Yes. So it's like people like that that I kind of geek out. Some musicians too. How do you, you know? like, like Dan Rather? That's a he big was deal. so lovely and so, so nice. gracious and so nice. All the things that you want him to be and how he seems like that on camera. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched him for years, years. Oh, Dan Rather, yeah. I, I just text that one right to my husband. I'm like, look what I got. Yes. I got a picture of a Dan Rather. Be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So switching gears a little mm-hmm. bit. Your new cookbook, pull up a chair mm-hmm. just dropped today it's in book four i know it's, here. it's crazy so what has been some of the inspirations for the recipes in the book oh it's all, all family okay from my family you know to when i when i was little to you know my kids and my husband and and when if you pick up the book you'll see the heaviness of family everywhere i mean it's just you know i'm excited for people to see it i'm excited for for people to cook from it but mm-hmm. on a selfish you know like on a on a very like you know personal level right um i i love Love that I get to keep this and have for my kids. Yeah, and this for is the perfect time for this to be dropping. I mean, is fall's it? here. I don't know. Halloween's here. Yeah, we're <laughs> basically Christmas. Happy New Year. So oh, I know, right? Really when Halloween is. drops, you're right. You're, you're like, Happy like New Year. Valentine's we're over. It's back like, to it's, it's 2019. I know, people. really. 2019. Honestly, so yeah. are there any recipes or any traditional cooking uh, methods that you? Oh have my gosh, your there, there's tons. Um, you know, there's many recipes that I wanted to put in there um, that were special to me and my family that I had to have in there. Um, there's a lot of stuff that actually is really relatable. For for holiday, mm-hmm. um, I love comfort food. So you know what oh, I mean. Like yeah. I mean, really. Um, but I'm also a California girl, and you know we get fruit like year round. Yeah. So um, there's um, there's some Southern flair. My husband's from Houston, so H-Town. you'll see a lot of my best friends from North. I mean, from South Carolina.
Carolina. So there's a lot of Southern flair. I, I have such a huge, you know, passion for that that side of you know of, of America. And I just, if I could live in the South, I probably would. Um, Beautiful. But um, but there's a lot of California stuff in there too. So it's where I'm from. Oh, I love it. I mean, from your cookbook to your amazing show, Alexa and Katie, you are doing it all, Tiffany. Oh, you're sweet. Of course. I mean, thank you for so much for Thanks stopping for by today. Me. And her cookbook in the stores, y'all. Yes. Go get it. I love right. it. Yes. I, I heard it. I heard it. You heard the Texas in me. I love it. I love right. it. Stay tuned, y'all, for more AM to DM. <laughs> <laughs> Five years ago, when I had just turned 13, I killed my best friend. Whew. Okay, so that's the first line in Lauren Oliver's new book, Broken Things, and obviously you guys know me. I got the book yesterday, I read it all last night in one sitting. Lauren joins me now to talk more about the book. So we were discussing before the before the break. Uh, I am in a book club where we only read exclusively murder mysteries with female protagonists. So obviously this book was right up my alley. Do you like to read these kind of books too? Um, I mean, I love yeah. I mean, I love psychological thrillers, twisty things. I mean, I like mysteries of all variety. Um, so yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I mostly write books that I would want to read. I hope. Yeah. I feel like that's the best books to write, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, I haven't read this. Yeah, Might yeah. as well write it. <laughs> no, it's very similar. It gives me very similar pleasure. So, yeah. I feel like psychological thrillers, crime, true crime mm -hmm. have been such a huge, I don't want to say fad. That sounds a little mm. morbid. But it's been something that people are really interested in, yeah. especially over the past couple of years. And a lot of think pieces have been written about why women are so drawn to this genre. Why do you think women are so drawn to this genre? Um, you know, because it's like wish fulfillment of expurgating like a lot of rage and anger. No. I mean, I think, you know, actually my father's a true crime writer, um, so he's a, a nonfiction writer about serial killers um, and historical true crime. Um, you know, I think that there's something, I think that there is, especially because psychological thrillers um, in general tend to be about very close, you know, domestic relationships, relationships between husband and wife, relationship of mother to child, um, and relationships in which, you know, there's a lot of unexpressed, I think, often, you know, wishes for violence or wishes for, um, you know, you know, again, there, there's some degree of wish fulfillment about the ability to express and the ability to step outside the norms of female behavior um, by murdering people, potentially, um, that I think is very kind of appealing um, and that women gravitate towards. I also think it's funny that true crime has had a resurgence because it's like more comforting to read about serial killers than it is to read about the state of global affairs <laughs> somehow. I feel like that could definitely yeah. be true. <laughs> and in this book, the protagonists are all high schoolers, mm -hmm. and I one of the things I think I find very interesting about true crime and about crime fiction is a lot of it explores how female friendships can be so engulfing that they're mm -hmm. toxic. Mm -hmm. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit? Are you yeah. interested in that? I mean, absolutely. I mean, first of all, on the one hand, you know, I've had strong female friendships and female relationships are at the heart of my life and they're at the heart of all of my books. And at the same time, I mean, especially the girls, um, when they are accused of, of doing this crime, when their friend Summer is killed, um, they're 12 years old. I mean, and I think, or 12 and going on 13. Um, and I think, you know, at the time, they really have this blurring of um, the, the collapse of the boundaries between fiction and reality. They don't really know what love looks like. And, you know, female friendships, they are. They're deeply intimate. And they can honestly almost have elements of romance. I mean, you kind of do feel like you're in love with your best friends. But also there's ways of, you know, I really wanted to explore basically 
um, the nuance of their relationships and that you can love somebody who also terrifies you um, and that you can need somebody who's also kind of causing you pain. Um, and that's what the girls are experiencing um, in, in the book. And I've certainly had experiences like that myself um, and observed it in the past. Yeah, when yeah. you're, you've, I feel like I've been in talks of female friendships mm -hmm. as well, and it Absolutely. can be a thing like, oh, you love them, you want to be around them, yes. but you're also scared what happens if they don't love you anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So were you writing these books for teenagers as well? I know you've written some young adult fiction as well. Yeah, 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 no. So this is, this is um, you know, I mean, you know, young adult fiction is so interesting because, I mean, people, there's a diverse, obviously, age group that reads them. This is YA, this is YA fiction. Um, and, you know, the, the YA genre has now obviously spread to include and encompass a huge amount of different kinds of topics, including ones that are pretty dark um, and including ones that are, but I do think that the thing with teen fiction is that there's always some degree of redemption, right? Like there's always some degree of redemption by the end. So hopefully you don't read it and feel, you know, you might be creeped out, but you're not gonna feel Hopefully you feel slightly uplifted as well. Yeah, and it, I feel like it helps you, especially as an yeah. adult reading a book like this, understand yeah. how you can get drawn into this yeah. toxic relationship. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I think that's the reaction that a lot of adult women have had. I don't know exactly yet how teens and whether they're able to see that because you're so immersed in it at the time. Um, I mean, friendships are, by when you're a teenager, you know, you don't really have a barometer for measuring how normal they are in some ways, but they're also the heart of your life. I mean, your friend group, at least, is everything. And in these, these girls in particular, you know, they don't really have anybody else but each other. So they kind of cling to each other even when it's, you know, when it's kind of a weight dragging them both down. I mentioned to you that I read one of your other books, Vanishing yeah. Girls, in my book club, Murder Mysteries, Female Protagonist. Love it. I love uh, that it's so specific, your book club. <laughs> we know what we like. Yeah, we know what yeah. we like. And you know, like, I work in news. I don't need to read nonfiction. No. I don't need to read heavy stuff. Like, no. this is my, yeah. like, brain yeah. break. Yeah. Uh, but you've written so many books. Your novel, Panic, is now being adapted yeah. into an Amazon pilot. That's yeah. so exciting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Do you yeah. have any more info? Yeah, so I was just on set. I mean, not literally today, but um, I came straight for, for on set with tour. It's really fun and exciting, doing a lot of night shoots. Um, the actors, the, the cast is brilliant, and the director, Lee Janiak, is really, she's, she's extraordinary. So I'm really excited. I've always loved Panic. Um, I don't love all of my books afterwards. Sometimes you feel like, oh, that was kind of dumb. But you know, you do the best <laughs> you can at the time. Um, but um, I, I do, I really love Panic, and I really always saw it as a TV show, because I really wanted to explore all the, the, the whole town and all of the different adult characters. So we're wrapping actually tomorrow, and then we'll see. So, you know, cross fingers, we'll know um, if the whole series gets picked up, hopefully by December. Okay, well now I'm just gonna have to go download that on my iPad. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll like it. That one has some darkness too, but no murder, sadly. Yeah. The darker the better for me. Yeah. Anyone that knows me knows that I read things and I'm like, oh, that's disgusting, I love it. <laughs> I was just about to watch, ask you if you'd seen sharper objects, but we can talk about Obviously, that. obviously. Yeah. Well, Lord, thank you so much for joining me. Broken Things is out thank now. You. And up next, Alex and I are responding to some of your tweets. Don't go away. That was such a fun conversation. I feel like people always ask, oh, do you get starstruck? I don't really get starstruck <laughs> by a lot of celebrities, but the fact, like being able to talk to an author of a bunch of books I've read about yeah. true crime fiction, that's like, it was pretty cool. But sometimes it's that one thing or person uh, who impacts the work that you kind of, that you like, or yeah. you know, your hobby or your area of interest, and that's the one that you like, want to fangirl over a little bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've never been able to ask an author about their book before. I was asking her all these questions, like, did this remind you of this? And what did you think? about this like about the book I don't know it's pretty cool
Okay, well, here's a tweet from in the prompter. It says, The Paul McLeod. Very good. The Paul McLeod. Closure passes 51 to 49. Key, no vote. Lisa Murkowski, key, yes vote. Joe Manchin. Okay, so we're talking about the closure vote, which we've been trying to dissect backstage. The closure vote is basically kind of a preview vote, right? It's a preview vote, and Paul followed up that tweet saying, this sets up a final vote to nominate Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court tomorrow unless it has to be pushed back because of a senator's daughter's wedding or cousin's birthday or dog's bed appointment or something like that. Okay, uh, Paul, a daughter's wedding is not the same thing as a dog's hair appointment or whatever you said. <laughs> well, it's very important. Referencing what we, the conversation we were having earlier with Tarini about uh, uh, Senator Danes and what might happen with him. But, uh, you know, I've kind of been ha having this feeling all week long, this sort of sinking feeling where all of these survivors and women and folks put themselves on the line, did everything they could have done, and in the end, it just won't matter. So uh, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be glued to Twitter following this, but it just doesn't feel good. And, uh, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, moving along to uh, some uh, later tweets, we asked, what is the uh, thinnest excuse, thinnest excuse you've ever used to post a selfie? And Joe Lee said, it's like Alicia Keys once said to Adam Levine, do I do the, f the fuck I want? I do the fuck I want, which I think that's great. I think that that is the spirit in which you should post a selfie. I do the fuck I want. I don't know. I've never heard that term. I, I'll, just, I'll try that one on for size. We aired the latest episode of Making the Most Of from Austin, Texas, and Princess Slaya said, I relate to this angelic praise for barbecue, not Memphis barbecue, but good. You'll have to tell us what your favorite uh, barbecue is. I guess Memphis. Oh my gosh, and it looks like Saeed and Isaac are just having the best time in all of these videos, getting to try all the different food, seeing all the culture of everywhere that they're going. I am a little envious. Shout out to Isaac and Saeed. Uh, I hope you have an amazing trip and bring us back souvenirs, please. Yeah, I need one of those little keychains with my name on it. It's not hard, it's like two bucks. You can expense it. Finally, we can move along to one more thing before we go here. I'd just like to note that the Washington Post wrote an article about lower thirds, and it did not mention AM to DM once. Rude Washington Post. Boo. We have some hilarious lower thirds. CNN is shaking because of us. But seriously, we have uh, just an incredible team of producers who are so creative and uh, bring so much joy to our lives and our viewers' lives by getting Speaking creative in these hours. Thank you, Stephanie. I don't do anything here. Alex does everything. Not, I just stand in front of here and read off a teleprompter. So. That is so Kudos not you, true Alex. at all, Stephanie. <laughs> not true. But anyways, thank you to our guests, Tarini Party, Ariane Lang, Zainab Salbi, Tiffany Thiessen, and Lauren Oliver. Next week we, ha week, we have so many cool guests. We have Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr., KJ Appa, Lily Reinhardt from Riverdale, Raven Simone. Oh my God, it's so exciting. I mean, the Riverdale people, we stand, can't even believe it. And we will be back hosting again on Monday. So let us know what you want to see, and we'll see you then. Also, I am resisting the Raven, that's so Raven puns, so that's hard so right Raven. now. It's really taking so much restraint. <laughs> <laughs>